Hello and welcome back to the show. So I am super excited today to be sitting here with my guest, Dave Foster, who is an expert in a very unique or a very popular strategy, if you will, for real estate investors, which is the 1031 exchange uh, for real estate investing. So that's the topic we're going to be talking all about today, which is how investors can be leveraging this strategy to not only save on taxes, but also maximize uh, their portfolio as an investor. And I think if you're either a real estate investor or a real estate agent who works with investors, this will be a really interesting episode to listen to and to get Dave's insights into the intricacies and the strategies of the 1031 exchange. So without further ado, Dave, I want to welcome you to the show. Hey, thank you, Kobe. It's great to be here. You know, it's interesting that, you know, you, you kind of talked about this unique strategy. It's almost like it's voodoo, right? Because it deals with the tax code, which is number one, really boring. So only nerds like me dive into it. But once you get inside, you start to find the ways where you can do what I call the second best way of making money in real estate. The best way to make money and where, where people will tell you that you make your money in real estate is when you buy it. Very common proverb, right? Because when you buy it right, you know you're going to be able to sell it right. Where I've lived for a bunch of years now is on the second half of that. That equally important, it's not just when you buy the real estate, but when you sell the real estate, that determines how much you get to keep. And in my mind, that's the key. It's not just necessarily how much I sell it for, but it's what I get to keep at the end. Yeah, and that's very important, right? We always hear, you know, it's not so much about how much money you make, but how much you keep. That's the important uh, aspect, or at least an important principle of building true wealth. So Dave, I want to thank you for being here today. But before we dig into the 1031 exchange and how it works, would you mind just kind of sharing your story a little bit? Um, you've been an investor for a very long time, and um, I'd love to get to know a little bit more about you and how you became an investor, and what was it that really drove you towards being the uh, the expert in 1031 exchanges? Is, is that a polite way of saying I'm old? Is that what you're doing here? <laughs> I think that's the, I think that's the, the best way to say something. <laughs> oh my, well, this will date me, because my story is actually one of the development of my practice in 1031. And here's how you can date me. My, what put me into 1031 exchanges was my very first real estate transaction, which was also my very first mistake in real estate. I bought a Denver duplex for $130,000. If you could find a Denver duplex for $130,000 anywhere, I'll buy 10 of them. That's how long ago this was before Denver became. But the whole point is that my wife and I wanted to get off the corporate train because we had just had our first child. And it was so exciting to realize that really what was limiting our lives was not money. It was time. Time is the commodity that you can't replace. So we were trying to figure out how we could maximize time to be with our family as we were raising it up. And so like so many people, somebody said, let's just start investing in real estate. It'll be easy, she said, right? So 
ready, fire, aim. We bought a duplex. We fixed it up, put some renters in it, sold it, and made a ton of money. Now, that's pretty awesome, right? Why is it a mistake? Because when I went to my accountant at the end of the year, his words were basically, boy, you got a big tax bill from this. Not congratulations, Dave. Not way to go, Dave. You got a big tax bill coming up. So that was when I realized, Kobe, that all of us have a silent partner in real estate. And his name is Uncle Sam. And if you're not careful, Uncle Sam's going to make more than you will. So we had had a 10-year goal of wanting to get ourselves independent so that we could buy a sailboat and go sail away and raise our family. I don't know, not everybody's dream, but it was ours. When I saw the $30,000 check that I had to write to the IRS for that transaction that year, that turned our 10-year goal into a 20 to 30 to maybe never goal as was because it was taking so much money. And to this day, 30 years later, I look at that $30,000 and I say, what if I could have kept that 30,000 and invested it? Well, if I could make 10% of my money, like most realtors, real estate professionals can, then for 30 years, I would have been making $3,000 a year for nothing more than not paying the tax. And jump forward 30 years, that's how many hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's a mistake that I still think about to this day. But what it did was it led me into, because I'm a degree accountant and a spreadsheet Excel nerd, it led me into studying the tax code to try to find those ways to keep more in my pocket. And the 1031 exchange was just popping on the scene. Now, for those who may not be familiar with this, it's part of the tax code that lets you sell investment property and buy new investment property. And by following the rules in between, you get to indefinitely defer paying that tax. So that 30,000 would have gone into my pocket and it would have benefited me for the next 30 years. I could have used that money. We had to buy a lot of diapers over the years. But that's what led me into that. And as soon as I saw what it was going to do for us, I said, oh my gosh, there is nobody that's going to teach this because accountants and attorneys are more concerned with having your overall practice. And to be a 1031 qualified intermediary, which you're required to have, all we can do are your 1031 exchanges. So it's a very narrow scope of practice. And of course, the IRS isn't going to market it. So this is something that needed education. And so for 30, 28 years now, we have been doing education, teaching people about 1031 exchanges, doing them for ourselves, helping investors understand how to use them. And by the way, 10 years to the day, we sailed away on a 53-foot sailboat, paid for with tax-free dollars from our real estate transactions. And we lived on a boat for 10 years off of our portfolio of short-term rentals, all bought with 1031 exchanges. So I'm a believer. Yeah, absolutely. And you should be, right? Because this is something that 
has really provided a, you know the life that you wanted right and i love the story that you told of when you looked at you know the first time that you you sold your you know you sold that duplex and then you looked at the tax bill that you had and it really just kind of shocked you as far as you know you know getting a like a reality check almost as to wow this you know this is going to take a lot longer to you know retire and, and fulfill my dream in real estate if i keep doing this so you made a change and that was learning more about the 1031 exchange and actually becoming really, I would say, the expert in this uh, in this strategy. So for people that know about the 1031 exchange, I think there's some people who have either heard of it. If you're in the real estate space as an investor, you probably have heard of it somewhere, um, seen it in a blog post or, or a video or a book somewhere. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what people can do with it. Um, so I'd love to you know, kind of get your take on this is from what you've seen and, and the investors that you've talked to and, and you've worked with and yourself, you know, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about the 1031 exchange that are maybe a little bit too good to be true? And what are the truths about it and the intricacies that, you know, make it a reality where people can actually leverage a strategy uh, in their actual investments? That's an awesome question. You know, it's, um, I would say that the absolute biggest misconception, and I hear it all the time, is from people who will say something along these lines. You've got to pay the tax anyways. Why not pay it now? And I look at that and go, I always ask that person, do you have a retirement account? Well, yeah. Why? Because it's tax deferred, right? And this leads us to, let's play a game, Kobe. We're going to talk about the four Ds of 1031 investing. We'll see how good you can get on this, okay? So I'll give you the first one. The first D is defer. For this reason specifically, because every day that those dollars are in your pocket is a dollar you get the benefit off of them. So whether it's one day or whether like it could have been for me 30 years, the money comes to me. So why do a 1031 if you're gonna pay the tax anyways someday? Because any day you keep it deferred, you're making the money on. So the first D of 1031 investing, start out and defer. Any ideas what the second D of 1031 investing would be? I'm not sure. I would want to say depreciate, but uh, not sure if that's the right one. I love depreciation, by the way, because that's that pretend game that the IRS gives you, right? Where you get a current write-off on investment real estate. That's a huge game changer. Here's where it fits with 1031, but by the way, you're wrong. Depreciation has to be recaptured when you sell the property. Talk about a non-gift. The IRS gives it to you and then takes it back. But when you do a 1031 exchange, you get to continue deferring the depreciation recapture. And if you buy more than you sell, you get to add more depreciable basis. So your tax write-offs get bigger and bigger as you grow. So that's huge. But unfortunately, I thought that was a great guess. The second D is also defer. (laughs) Because you can look at where the market is taking you. And the 1031 exchange will go wherever you want to go. You can sell property anywhere in the United States and buy property anywhere in the United States. 
So you can, if San Francisco's topping out, you can go, well, guess how many people did this? You sell high in San Francisco, you go buy low in Austin. So you can be Elon's neighbors. Austin's gone crazy, right? So everybody's looking, where's the next market? That's going to happen, but it hasn't yet. So the market can speak to you and you can use the 1031 exchange to go wherever you want to, to accommodate those kind of returns. By the same token, you can also change classes of real estate. So you could sell, people start out with single family rentals or the most classic example is what I call the accidental investor where two people get married later in life, they each have a house. Well, they move into one, the other one becomes a rental. It's investment now. They kind of like the rental income, right? So when they get ready to sell it, they do a 1031 exchange. Well, maybe they want to buy two of them now. Or maybe they say, you know what? Let's go into multifamily. Or we want to do raw land. Or we want to buy commercial. Whatever it is, whatever the opportunities are that the market is giving you, the 1031 can accommodate. And you continue to reap the benefit of that deferred tax. <clears throat> so what do you think the third D is? I'm going to take a guess and say defer. Yes. See, you're a quick study. And here's why. Because just like the market, the 1031 exchange can be used to accommodate wherever the market is. The 1031 exchange can be used to accommodate whatever your personal journey needs. The accidental investor, when we start out many times, we have more time than we do money, more energy than we do money. So what do we do? We buy as cheap as we can and we force appreciation. And then we grow and we try to get numbers and numbers of properties because we got all this energy. You can 1031 exchange and sell one and buy multiples. The reverse is true. As we start to get older, I got more, more money than I do time. So I'd really like to buy myself a vacation. So maybe I 1031 exchange from full-time rentals into short-term rentals where I get some use of them. Or I 1031 from single family into multifamily where I have fewer assets to manage and I can become more passive. I can go into triple net commercial properties where I don't have to manage anything except the lease. So all of those things can be done as I go through my journey. And again, the 1031 exchange will still keep everything deferred. Now, here's a couple of really cool tips for this part of that, the third D. As I get closer to retirement, I can use the 1031 exchange to position my portfolio near where I would want to live. So I live in Cincinnati. I've got a portfolio of rentals. I want to retire in Sarasota, Florida. So ahead of time, I start to 1031 my properties from Cincinnati to Sarasota. Then when I retire, I'm going to sell my house in Cincinnati. And the house in Cincinnati, which was my primary residence, I get to take, if I'm married, the first $500,000 of profit tax-free. 
Whoa, that's a game changer, isn't it? I can do that once every two years. So I'm going to start retirement with $500,000 in my pocket of tax-free dollars. I'm going to move down to Sarasota where my rental portfolio awaits. Can it get any better, Kobe? Yes, it can. <laughs> it can. Because I could buy another primary residence, but I also could convert one of my rentals into my next primary residence. And when all I do is convert it, it's use. That does not create a taxable event. So I did a 1031 exchange into a really kicking beachfront property on Siesta Key. A couple of years later, no more rentals. I'm moving in. No tax is due as long as I own it. So I put 500000 in my pocket tax-free from selling my old house, and I get to live in that property for free as long as I own it. Could it get any better? Yeah, because if you live in that property long enough that you've owned it for five years and you've lived in it for two out of the five years before selling it, then you get to get a proration of the gain tax-free. So it looks something like this. I did a 1031 exchange, bought the new property, rented it for two years, moved it, lived in it for three years. Then I sold it. Did I own it for five years? Yep, I sure did. Did I live in it for two out of the previous five? Yep, I sure did. So I would get three-fifths or 60% of the gain tax-free. If I lived in it for eight years, I'd get 80% of the gain tax-free. So are we starting to see an answer to that person who said, well, if you've got to pay the tax anyways, there's a bunch of ways you don't have to, right? And that's one of them. Learning that. I've got some people that have bought two or three properties and their whole retirement plan is they're moving into them one at a time. They'll live in them for a while, then they'll sell them and they'll take that money tax-free and then they'll go to the next one. How awesome is that? So that's three Ds. Kobe, for the win. What's the fourth D? Defer. You were so close. I know. I teased you on that one. The fourth D is actually something we don't like to talk about. And it's called dying. The fourth D of the 1031 exchange is to die. Because when you die, your heirs get your property. And what is called a step up in basis. They inherit it as if they paid market value for it on the day you died. So. You don't pay the tax. Your estate doesn't pay the tax. Your heirs don't pay the tax. It literally does just go away. Thank you, Internal Revenue Service. All I've got to do is start out by deferring. Continue to defer going anywhere in the country into any type of property. Positioning myself for where my energy levels are and into retirement and finally dying. And I will never pay a penny in capital gains tax from the sale of real estate. Pretty nice gig, huh?
Yeah, that's pretty good. So I don't know if a lot of people understand those kind of intricacies, right? And that was something that I learned a lot as well, just from, you know, the four Ds and getting, I think, what, two out of the three, two out of the four, correct? It was trick questions. Come on. You're, you're way better than that. <laughs> yeah, I should have gotten the last one. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but no, it's it's a really it's a really good um it's a really good breakdown of just the overall benefits of what this 1031 exchange does, right? Because I think a lot of people see it from the surface level and they see, oh, it's a tax deferred exchange and you can sell your investment property, you know, and buy another one without paying any tax uh, on that first sale, right? But there's there's more to it uh, as far as just overall wealth building than just that. So I think one of the other things that you know when I was listening to the breakdown was a lot of people from the outside looking in, they'll see. And this is something that I, I saw as well as, you know, 1031 exchange, you see it, you know, being being said that it has to be like kind of properties, but you mentioned that you're able to sell, you know, like a single family home and then buy multifamily, right? You're able to exchange different types of property. So is that, you know, is, is there a misunderstanding from people's outside perspective or is there oh, yeah, not? It's just because of that phrasing, like kind, what, what does it mean to be like? There's two different uh, phrases the Irish uses. And the first is like, kind, and qualified use. And like, kind simply means that it's real estate. Back in the old days, if you used to be able to exchange real estate for real estate, and you could exchange airplanes for airplanes, cattle for cattle. So like, kind was had a little more meaning back then. Now it simply means any type of real estate. Qualified use means that it is real estate that you hold for investment. So you can't use your primary residence. That doesn't work. You can't 1031 properties that you bought specifically to fix and flip because your intent was not to hold those properties. Your intent was to sell them. So the IRS says, yeah, we can get dollars from you. You're a dealer. We're going to charge you tax. So the 1031 really is for those people that mom and pop investors or people who buy property to use the property to make money. Got it. So that makes a lot more sense, right? I think those those phrase the phrasing of that make it seems very um, you know, make it seem like you can do a lot less than what you actually can, right? Because I think a lot of and even I think a lot of investors who, you know, they 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 have properties, but they're they're looking into maybe 1031 exchanging. Um, but they haven't done it yet. They, they look at, you know, the a phrasing like this and they haven't talked to like an expert or a professional. They'll, they'll have questions and concerns about whether or not they can exchange it for, let's just say, you know, selling a commercial property for a residential or, or vice versa. Well, yeah, there's some things that will really blow your mind. For instance, like kind or what real estate? Oil and natural gas interests are considered real estate. So you could sell a duplex in Omaha and buy an oil well in Texas. And according to the IRS, you're selling real estate and buying real estate. Billboard leases and cell phone tower leases are considered real estate. So you could sell a commercial property in Denver and go buy a bunch of billboards on I-75. And that's real estate. That's a 1031 exchange. I lived on our boat on a piece of real estate. It was a dock, but I actually rented the dock in Key West from a client of mine who had bought it on a 1031 exchange. And because it was a deeded boat slip, 
It qualified as real estate. So he sold a pharmacy building and bought a boat slip using the 1031 exchange. So there's some really strange things that will qualify, but you're right. You've got to get into it and you just got to ask the questions because the IRS is never going to volunteer the answers. So you got to find the right person, ask the questions, and then you'll be off and running. That's really cool, right? So I had no idea that was even, you know, what was considered real estate uh, in this 1031 exchange as, as long as for, you know, for these rules, right? So like you can buy a billboard, you can buy like a dock, right? If it qualifies, um, that really kind of opens up people's, you know, people's minds when it comes to, you know, upgrading, downgrading their investments, right? Based on like you were saying, their energy, uh, you know, what stage of life they're in, what, what you know, what, what they're looking for, right? At this moment, maybe they're looking for, you know, a little bit more involved investment, then it's one thing. If they're looking for something more passive, then they could, you know, you know, go go for something else. And that's really cool that you can do these these type of exchanges. And I think another thing for at least for 1031s goes, I think, you know, something I've heard out there is there's certain time limits, right? When it comes to making the exchange. You know, would you care to kind of explain a little bit how that works and what those limits are? Is it different or is it the same for every 1031 exchange or does it change based on, you know, kind of the situation you're in, you know, what type, you know, are you changing from one, you know, commercial to residential and so on and so forth? Those are what people see as the biggest limiting factors in feeling like they can do an exchange because the timing is very rigid. It's consistent throughout every 1031 exchange, and there is no options to not do it. It's, I mean, it, it just is what it is, or your exchange will fail. The first timing piece is that from the date of the closing of your sale of your old property, and you want to think of the 1031 exchange kind of in convoluted terms for what a normal real estate investor would. You don't buy a property and then sell it. With the 1031 exchange, you sell a property and then you buy one. So your 1031 starts with the sale. And from that date, you have 45 more days, calendar days. That includes holidays. I actually had an exchange that the 45th day was Christmas day this year. And I'll be darned if I did not get a phone call from that client on Christmas Day because he wanted to make sure we had gotten his list. Now, he's going to give me a bottle of wine, so I didn't mind answering the phone. But, yeah, it's very serious. That's how serious it is. Now, you have 45 days to identify your potential replacements. The other part of the time is that you have 180 days from your sale to close on your purchase. Now, that's not so bad, uh, and a lot of people will use that opportunity to go into new construction because you can actually get under contract for your new property before your old property closes. You have to close the sale of your old property before you take title to the new property. So for new construction, what someone will do is They'll see a, a new condo building they want to go into, or they'll buy a house that's 18 months out. They'll get under contract for it, but they won't take title to any of it. And then when it's within six months of being done, they'll start to market their old property. 
They close their old property. Within the next 180 days, they take title to their new property. That can work really well. And the other thing that that does, Kobe, with the 1031 that people don't think about is that allows you to move from real estate where there might be a pretty heavy capital expense risk. Like you've got a building that's going to need a new roof. It's going to need a new HVAC or something in the next few years. And there's nothing like a $30,000 roof to put a damper on your returns. But if you 1031 exchange and sell it while that roof is still serviceable, you're not going to pay for it. And you're 1031ing into new construction where you get at 8, 10, or 15 years of no capital expense. So that could be a great way of managing it. So what we have, we do internal audits all the time. And what we've discovered is that even when it was the absolute hardest to find properties a couple of years ago, that our clients were still finishing exchanges about 92% of the time. And that's consistent with everybody in the industry. It's just, it's not as hard as you think to find good properties because you start searching before you sell. And I always tell people, take care of the hardest thing first. What's going to be the hardest thing to do? Find a new property? Then go find that first, get it under contract with an extended closing date. Then sell your old property. We had folks in California that would do that all the time because they were literally getting 15 offers above asking on the day they put it on the market. So they weren't worried at all about selling it. So they found a new property first, then we sold the old property, then they closed on their new property. If selling your property is going to be the hardest thing to do, then guess what? There's going to be tons of properties available. So take care of selling your old property, get it under contract, get it closed, then take the next 45 days to shop around. That makes, I mean, I think that really clears it up. So let's, let's kind of recap a little bit. So 45 days between selling of the old property and identifying the, Correct. identifying the next property. So not closing on it, but identifying. So what, what constitutes that's identifying? If you don't mind asking me asking. That's, oh, my gosh. These are some of those things where you'll respond by saying, Dave, why? And I just shrug my shoulders and go, I don't know. It is an instrument in writing between parties to the transaction. What does that mean? Well, we provide a list as the QI because we want to be very careful, but there's nothing magical about that. It could be literally a contract. You could be under contract for the property. It could be something where you and one of your clients got together and wrote the address down on a cocktail napkin and dated it. We've used emails before where someone said, oh, I forgot to put this property on my list. Well, you can't add it because you're past day 45. Well, but we were talking about it with our realtor. Do you have any emails to that effect? Sure. I had hired a property management team already and was talking to them about it. It just has to be in writing and it does have to be a specific identification. So you couldn't say, a unit in the building at 123 Sunset Drive. It would have to be 
Unit A. One, two, three, Sunset Drive. Got it. Yeah. So that's really so it's just it just has to be an instrument in writing, right? So it has to be written down that you've expressed interest. And from the sounds of it, it doesn't have to be does it have to be one property or you you mentioned a list, so it could be multiple properties as well. Yeah, this is another really quirky thing. The IRS does not limit how much you purchase. You can purchase as much as you want in terms of dollar value. They limit how you identify your potential replacements. Because we think the 1031 statute today is all a result of a court case that the IRS lost. So let's just imagine a ticked off IRS who has to let you do this, but doesn't have to make it easy. And they don't have resources, so they want to do as little work as possible. So as part of your list, if you name three or fewer replacements, it doesn't matter what they're worth. So you could sell a property for $100,000 and you could name three $10 million properties. As long as you closed on one of them, that's fine. But if you name more than three, think about this. The IRS is going to have to be free to check up on you if they decide to audit you, right? So if you name more than three, then either the total value of the list can't be more than 200% of what you sold, or you have to close on every property. Hmm. So that's how they, I call it kind of a funnel. It's how they try to corral you down and just control the process and information flow a little bit. But ultimately, they don't care how much more you purchase. And so that's the opportunity for those people that want to do what we call a consolidation exchange, where they sell several properties and they combine the 1031 exchanges to buy something much more expensive. It's the exact opposite if they were doing what's called a diversification exchange where they want to sell one property and they want to go buy two cheaper properties. Now, why would they do that? Well, because in general, with real estate, the lower the square footage, the more dollars per square foot of rent you make. So you may have a $200,000 property that you can get $2,000 a month for. But there may be a a $400,000 property only gets you $3,500 a month. Well, the 1031 investor says, well, if it's time for me to sell my property for $400,000, I'm going to go buy two $200,000 properties because I'll make more money in total on rents. And that's when you can fiddle around with the four or more property list. Yeah, that's that's really cool as well. So you can take multiple properties that you currently have and then 1031 them into one or fewer or the opposite, right? You take one that's worth more and then diversify them into multiple properties. Yeah, that's the ebb and flow. Uh, you know, whatever the market is telling you. Remember five, six years ago, these huge multifamily projects were just getting exciting. Now they're like hen's teeth. You can't find them. So the idea was you sell five small properties and use that as your down payment 
to leverage into the much larger multifamily project, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And just to clarify on these, so 45 days to identify, right? Just going back to the time limit. And then you mentioned 180 days. That is not, it's not on top of the 45 days, right? It's just, it's overall, or is it on That's top? Correct. No, it's 180 again from the day that you close. So it's 45 to identify, but you've got another 135 after that, if you want to, to close on it. Okay. So it's 145 like 45 ah. plus 135. Yeah. So okay. now what a lot of people will do though, is they'll stagger, they'll try to combine and cluster their sale and purchase. So they get under contract for both of them at the same time. So they close their sale and three days later, they close their purchase. Perfectly fine. And what that does is that lets them kickstart their income stream much more quickly. Right. You don't want to leave too much time in between, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So again, it's another question that I think, you know, comes to mind is for 1031 exchanges, there's no, I guess there's certain rules on, you know, we mentioned a little bit about, you know, if you identify a certain amount of properties, right, under three, over three, there's uh, limits to the actual value right, of, of, you know, what you're trying to 1031 exchange into, but just on a general basis, is there any, is there any other LSA restrictions on just monetary value of the exchange? Could you, you know, like you said, you know, can I exchange $10 million into a, you know, $20 million if I had the other 10 million uh, just on hand, or is there, you know, is there a certain limit on that? Well, I wish we could, that would be awesome. But what the way the IRS phrases it, is that if you want to defer all tax, you've got to do two things. You first have to purchase at least as much real estate as your net sale. So if I get a contract for $540,000 and there's $40,000 of closing costs and commissions, my net sale, $500,000. If I want to defer all tax, I've got to purchase at least $500,000 of real estate. Now, remember, it doesn't have to be one property, could be two, three, whatever. But I've got to purchase that much. Now, I can purchase less than I sell, but I pay tax on the difference. So I say, well, but Dave, I only want $470,000, this replacement property. Well, you could do that. What would happen is you would pay tax on the $30,000 difference, and you'd still shelter whatever was left. That makes sense? Yes. Now that's the first half. The second half of the rule is that you also have to use all of your proceeds in the purchase of purchases. So let's say on that $500,000 sale, there was uh, $200,000 of, uh, $300,000 of debt. No, we'll say $200,000 of debt. So you get 300,000 in cash. I'm trying to make the numbers work up here. And believe it or not, I'm an accountant who's bad at math. So you have to take the $300,000 in proceeds used to purchase at least $500,000 of new real estate. Now you can take cash out just like you could purchase less than you sell, but you pay tax on the difference. Now, where it gets really fun is that you can allocate your proceeds any way you want. So let's say you're a conservative-minded folk 
and you're getting a little nervous about the market. You don't like the interest rates now. You're just wanting to simplify a little bit more. So you would sell that $500,000 property, take $250,000 of your proceeds, go buy a property for cash. You see what just happened? You automatically got rid of a bunch of risk because all you got to do is keep the lights on. You could never lose that property. There's no mortgage risk. Now, you would take the other $50,000, because remember, you had 300000 total. Take the other 50000 and use that as a 20% down payment on another $250,000 property. What happened? Well, I get the arbitrage of any return over and above my interest rate. I was able to fully defer all tax. I've got two rental properties instead of one. And I have one rental property where my equity is concentrated. So that if I ever, if interest rates come down, if I get eager and anxious and find another property I want to buy, I can refinance that property and pull the money out to go buy the next property. All simply because I crafted my 1031 exchange to accommodate that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't think a lot of people know that they can do that, right? Where, you know, on, on in this example, right, you're using the extra 50000 to buy another property that's valued at 250000 but it's not, you're not spending that in cash, right? You're, you're But right. it still, it still counts as, you know, meeting the requirements of, buying as much real estate as you sold your previous. Form. Exactly. And that may take some debt and that's perfectly fine. But as long as you use all your cash and as long as you purchase at least that much, and that gets back to that old depreciation example, which is the, the great tax write-off the IRS gives you, is that when you use your proceeds as leverage, it's possible to buy more ongoing tax write-off. Right. Yeah, that's super cool. So I think, you know, the 1031 exchange, right? There's, I, I definitely learned a lot. And I think a lot of people who are watching this are, are learning a lot as well. And there's there's so much that you can do with it that I don't think people knew about before. Um, I guess the last thing that I would definitely ask is just, you know, what are some mistakes that you've seen people make? What What is, what is probably like the biggest mistake you've seen people do this where they didn't do it right? Maybe it wasn't Maybe it was the time limit didn't get correct. Maybe it was the value that didn't get correct. What, what is like the biggest you know mistake that you've seen people make when they're doing 1031 exchanges on their first couple of ones, or maybe they've done a couple and they've gotten a little bit careless and it, it started to not work out the way they wanted to? Yeah, I would say that there's almost no problem that we cannot solve with 1031 exchanges if we're given enough runway. So the biggest mistake I get from people is they wait too late to start planning. If you've got an idea, I want to be here in 10 years, then we start working backwards to where today is and say, okay, today impacts tomorrow. What's the phrase? One of my favorite basketball teams, the coach always says, the goal is to do the next right thing. And you stack the next right thing on top of each other for years and you're a success. So the idea is to start early, ask questions, find your qualified intermediary, 
and talk to them about the possibilities. Because just like you, know, you and I talking here, there were some things you heard you never knew. And unless you ask those questions, yeah, the second greatest mistake people make, and it still happens every month, they close their sale and then call me and try to do a tender door exchange. Tend to happen. We've got to be in place prior to the closing of the sale. Yeah. People move too late. Yeah, exactly. But you know, other than that, I mean, really identifying where you're at, where you're going towards. And again, keeping that mantra in your mind that are there times when I just want to sell? Absolutely. Sometimes it's the right thing to sell and pay the tax. But the idea is to string together the longest periods of time in between that to let that deferred tax compound for you. And that's what planning can help you do. Yep, absolutely. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you. I learned a lot personally. I'm sure our listeners did as well. So for people that are watching this that want to know more about you, want to know more about the 1031 exchange, they want to talk to a qualified intermediary, like you said, what are some of the best ways that people can reach out to you, follow you, or just keep up with what you're doing and the education that you're providing? Yeah, you know, remember we talked at the very beginning about how the greatest issue in America now is education for this. Even though there's over a million exchanges being done every year, that's still maybe 10% of the transactions that could qualify. So it's, it's a huge need. So when we started, we did everything with education in mind. So you can go to the1031investor.com. You can check out our calculators, set up appointments to speak to us, read articles we've written. That will also take you to our YouTube channel where we've got 47. Oh my gosh, how did I do that? 47 videos all on 1031. I put myself to sleep. But if you go there, it's youtube.com backslash the 1031 investor. Do this old boomer a favor, subscribe. I've been dying to say that all my life. I finally get the chance. So YouTube channel, the1031investor.com. And of course, because I just had to, and I had so much spare time, I wrote a book and you can find it on Amazon it's called Lifetime Tax-Free Wealth, The Real Estate Investor's Guide to the 1031 Exchange. You've got one coming and I know you're going to like it. Thanks for absolutely. having me today. No, absolutely. Thanks for being here, Dave. I will make sure to leave the links to all of that in the description or the show notes down below, depending on where you're listening or watching this. Uh, other than that, Dave, I want to thank you one last time for being here. And before we let you go, any last pieces of advice, any last tips you want to leave with us before I let you sign off? Has totally nothing to do with 1031, but it's something that my son and I have been talking through today. And I just love how profound it is. The richest man is not the one who has the most. It's the one who needs the least. Let that percolate around. I love it. Love it, Dave. Thanks again. And thank you for tuning in. And uh, we will see you on the next show. Take care.